The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So for those of you who don't know me, uh, I have two daughters. I used to say that I have two teenage daughters. As of last week, I cannot say that anymore. My oldest daughter turned 20, and I know that we're all shocked by that, but she did. And they tell me that there are two aspects to my personality that make me perpetually uncool. So I don't know if you knew this, if you were cool at one point, you're probably not cool anymore. Other people get to decide that apparently. When I was a youth pastor, my kids and our youth group, I don't know what they thought of me, but they were very clear about the moment that I became uncool. And the moment I became uncool was the same moment that I became a father because you cannot be both cool and a parent. Those are two completely different things. And so while I got the judgment from them a long time ago about what made me not cool, uh, my children seem to relish the idea of telling me what at this particular moment is making me not cool. And those things, for me, the two that persist, have to do with language and the use of language. Because I'm one of those people, and maybe some of you are this way, I'm one of those people for whom words and phrases actually mean things. Like they don't mean what they didn't mean. They don't mean the thing that you want it to mean. They just mean things. And I get it that over time, usage change, people have different meanings for the same word. It used to be different 10 or 20 years ago. And I'm a writer, so we run into this all the time, negotiating with editors between what a word means and usage, like how people use a word. And I know it's an uphill battle because usage always wins, always wins. But I'm really stuck about meaning and things meaning things. Just so we can have a conversation together, we have to agree on what particular words mean. But the phrase that has been getting under my skin for the last four or five years is this phrase, begging the question. Have y'all heard people say begging the question? When people say begging the question, what they mean is requires us to ask. That is not what begging the question means. Begging the question is a philosophical fallacy where the conclusion is the same as the supposition. You are begging the question. So when someone says to you, that car is fast because it's speedy. Or someone says, she's pretty because she's beautiful. That's begging the question. That's begging the question, not requires us to ask. So when you say, when I hear someone say, begging the question, and they mean requires us to ask, silently, I am judging you. And I know I'm going to lose. Usage always wins. And that's the first example when my daughters say, you just need to get over stuff like that. And the second one is that I have no idea what any popular slang actually means. And I don't really want to know. Like, I'm tired of keeping up. So people say things, and I don't know what they mean. 
Like, I don't know what no cap means. I don't know what trust means. This is a big one with my 16-year-old. I will say something to her like, Catherine, did you study for that test? Are you ready for the test? And she will go, trust. What does that mean? Like, does that mean you studied? Does it mean you didn't study? Like, just trust? And my wife teaches sixth grade, and they had like a spirit day a couple of weeks ago, and it was like a cowboy spirit day. So she had on like this pink cowgirl hat with fringe on it and boots and did a whole thing. And she comes to her classroom, and her girls in her classroom go, Miss Palmer, your fit is drippy. Is that good? Could you tell me, like, is that a good thing? But then last weekend, I heard a phrase that I'd never heard before. So I was in Temple, Texas last week um, at the church where I used to serve as a senior pastor. And I did an Enneagram workshop with him over the weekend and then preached on Sunday. And so it's Sunday morning, we're standing around before worship starts. And I'm talking with uh, the guy who's the senior pastor there now. And it's a small church. Everybody pitches in to do everything. And apparently that morning, he had gotten there early and was looking for a broom and couldn't find this broom. So he called his wife. So do you know where this broom is? And she told him, it's in the closet. He goes, looks in the closet, can't find it. So he looks in all the closets in the church building, can't find it. Then he looks in every room. She gets there. He's explaining to her that he has looked everywhere for this broom and cannot find it. And she walks over to the closet where she told him it was, opens the door, sticks her arm in, pulls out the broom, closes it, walks back to him, and just stares. And then a friend of mine standing next to me says it. This is the first time I heard it. And she looked at him and she goes, you know what you did? You husband looked. <laughs> have you ever heard the phrase husband looked? I have never heard the phrase husband looked, but you know exactly what it means. That was completely new to me. And it occurs to me that when you're looking for something, finding what you're looking for is not always as easy as you want it to be, as you think it ought to be. And when I think about it, when you're looking for something and you can't find it, you have three options. Like your first option, you're looking for something, you can't find it, is like just to go on with your life and say, you know what? It'll turn up somewhere. Like, I don't have time to look for that now. It's not that important. Like, let's go on with life. And the second option is that you can't find it, but it's the kind of thing that you need, and you're going to need it pretty soon or relatively soon. And you don't want to do this, but you just think, I'm going to have to replace this. I can't find it. This happens to me all the time with remote controls. And then there are those items that when they go missing, nothing else can happen until you 
find it. Like they are that crucial, that important. Nothing else can happen. For me, those are three items, phone, wallet, keys. And when I'm about to leave the house, I need to leave with three things, phone, wallet, keys. I like the idea of not knowing where my phone is because I get to tell myself that I'm not one of those people who are addicted to my phone. But I can't go anywhere because it's got my maps on my phone and I don't care to remember where stuff is. And then I need my wallet because the only time I'm ever really leaving the house is to pay for something somewhere else, like to go get something. And I can't drive my car without my keys. So I can't leave the house. Now, some of you are like my wife. You can drive your car without the keys. She can get in and drive her car with an app, but she needs her phone to be able to use the app. So she still can't leave without phone, wallet, or keys. And everything has to stop. And maybe in your house, it's like mine. I will say something that sounds like this. Have any of you seen my phone, wallet, and keys? Which sounds like a question, but it's not. It's instructions. Get off your butt and help me look for my phone, wallet, and keys. Like this is what's happening here. Because those things are so important, even though they're small, that you absolutely have to find them. So when something is essential, you have to find it. One of my preaching mentors was a man named Mike. And Mike preached for the church where Rochelle and I worshiped when we were in college. And while we were there, his 12-year-old daughter, who was special needs, died. And so after she died, a friend of his gave him this very expensive, very nice pen. <clears throat> and Mike was a great writer and a great preacher. And he told Mike, you need to write about loving and losing your daughter. And so he did with that pen. And he actually finished writing that book on a flight. And it was done. He tucked his pen away, rested for the rest of the flight. The flight lands. He's gathering all of his things and realizes he can't find his pen. And so he begins lifting up seat cushions and looking on the floor, going everywhere to find this pen, and he can't find it. Well, the flight attendant comes over, and she says, everyone else is trying to get off of this plane. We're trying to deboard, and you're holding everyone up. And he explains to her that a friend of mine gave me this pen. I was supposed to write about my daughter's death, and I did that, and now I can't find the pen. Well, you know what happens. The next thing, the flight attendant is also on the floor looking around for this pen, and so are other passengers. Because when something is essential, when it's important, you have to look for it until you find it. And I tell you that because if you've been around Ecclesia, for Advents before now, you know that we dedicate this time of year, our Advent, to what we call Advent Conspiracy, where while the rest of the world is exchanging gifts, that we want to be people who give gifts, 
And so we've organized our community life around four tenets of Advent conspiracy that you'll hear about over the next four weeks. And those are spend less, give more, love all. And what I wanna talk with you about today, worship fully. And I tell you those stories because at the very beginning of the Christ story, what we discover, what we see in the gospels are people who are looking for Jesus. That worship actually begins with looking for Jesus. So in Matthew 2, this is how Matthew begins telling that story. He says, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in the province of Judea at the time when King Herod reigned. Not long after Jesus was born, magi, wise men or seers from the east, made their way from the east to Jerusalem. These wise men made inquiries. Where is this newborn who is the king of the Jews? When we were far away in the east, we saw his star and we have followed its glisten and gleam all this way to worship him. Well, this is how the story starts. (coughs) With wise men, magi, right there from the beginning. In every nativity, in every Christmas pageant, they are there. Wise men, they take up a lot of space for people that we hardly know anything about. They were not kings. There were not three of them, at least according to Matthew. We don't know where in the East they came from or how far they traveled. We don't know what they did for a living or how long it took them to get there, how old Jesus was when they got there, how long they stayed. We know almost nothing, but we do know is they were looking for something that they thought was so essential that they would travel the world to find it. And the reason we know it's essential is because they went through the trouble And you know how things are when you're busy. Just think about the holidays, all of the parties, all of the gifts, the shopping, the running around, all of that you have to, you have to prioritize during the holidays, what's important and what's not. Like I'm kind of like Frank in the movie Scrooge. Like I know who's getting a towel and who's getting a VHS. Y'all know what a VHS is? You gotta prioritize. But this was so important to them that the wise men go through all of this trouble because when you're looking for important things, you have to look until you find them. Matthew goes on with the story. He says, King Herod began to hear rumors of the wise men's quest and he and all of his followers in Jerusalem were worried. So Herod called all of the leading Jewish teachers, the chief priests and the head scribes, and he asked them where Hebrew tradition claimed the long-awaited anointed one would be born. That word anointed one is Messiah. Where's the Messiah to be born? They say an ancient Hebrew prophet, Micah, said this, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are no poor relation, for from your people will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So Herod 
says, let's get, around, let's get all of those guys who have gone to seminary and they need to tell me what's going to happen. Because when you're the king, the last thing that you want is someone else walking around saying that they're the king. And you really don't want other people believing that they're the king. So where is he supposed to be born? Y'all need to tell me all of this stuff. And why didn't you tell me? And the scribes sit around and they whip out their Bibles and concordances. And they said, well, you know, there's this little passage in Micah that says something about Bethlehem and the ruler will come from there. And so now the Magi are searching and Herod is searching. The scribes are searching. The priests are searching. They are all looking for Jesus. But they are all looking for Jesus for very different reasons. And it occurs to me that in the history of humankind, most people in the West have been good at looking for Jesus. The problem is we almost always find the Jesus that we're looking for because the Nazis had their own Jesus and white supremacists have their own Jesus and conservatives have their own Jesus and progressives have their own Jesus and the prosperity gospel has its own Jesus. Everybody has their own Jesus. Here's what this story might actually require us to ask. When we say that we're looking for Jesus, who is the Jesus we're looking for? And what would we do when we find him? I think that's why John the Baptist was such a popular preacher. Because John the Baptist had one message. The Messiah is coming. And that's the sermon you want to preach all the time. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Because when you hear that the Messiah is coming, everybody in the world gets excited about that. Because if you're, if you're broke, when the Messiah comes, you're going to have money. And if you're homeless, when the Messiah comes, you're gonna have a home. If you're hungry, when the Messiah comes, you're gonna have food. You just make the Messiah whatever you want the Messiah to be when the Messiah is coming. Messiahs are kind of like Christmas trees and you just hang up the ornaments that you like on them. But it's completely different. When the Messiah you get is the Messiah you got. And all of the shades of the Messiah that you want don't line up with what you hoped for and wished for. I mean, at Advent, the Christian church steps back into this story in which we invite the coming of Jesus into the world, but Jesus only comes as Jesus comes, and we don't get to make Jesus up. Like, what it is that you're looking for is the question of Advent. Matthew goes on, he says, Herod called the wise men to him, demanding to know the exact time and special star 
had appeared to them. Then Herod sent them to Bethlehem. Herod told them, go to Bethlehem and search high and low for this savior child. And as soon as you know where he is, report it to me so that I may go and worship him. Herod says, here's what we found out. It's in Bethlehem. <clears throat> Why don't you go? And when you find him, if you find him, you send word back to me because I want to go and worship him too. Now, if you hadn't heard this story before, or if you were living right in the middle of this story and Herod said, you know what? You're looking to Jesus. You're looking for Jesus because you want to worship him. When you find him, I want to go too. I'm not going to go now because when I go, you got to take secret service and it becomes a whole big thing. But when you find him, you come tell me and I will go worship too. And if you're in the middle of the story, why wouldn't you believe him? You don't know how the story unfolds. If you're worshiping Jesus and he wants to worship Jesus, you don't have a foe, you have a friend. And you don't know that in 10 months that Herod's gonna be so threatened by a new Messiah that he's gonna decide to slaughter all of the innocents, every boy under two. And you don't know that he's going to visit oppression on oppression on oppression. And you don't know that sometimes people say they want to worship and what they really want is control. What they really want is to maintain the status quo because everyone from a little bit to a lot would just prefer to use Jesus for our own goals. And if you've got an agenda, you will find a Jesus somewhere who will help you meet that agenda. Matthew concludes the story saying this. He says, the wise men left Herod's chambers and went on their way. The star they had first seen in the east reappeared, a miracle that, of course, overjoyed and enraptured the wise men. <clears throat> the star led them to the house where Jesus lay. And as soon as the wise men arrived, they saw him with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They unpacked their satchels and gave Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, just as Joseph did a few months before, the wise men had a dream warning them not to go back to Herod. The wise men heeded the dream ignoring Herod's instructions. They returned to their homes in the east by a different route. Now, this is a funny story. Because they arrive at Bethlehem and Matthew tells us they bow down and worship Jesus, giving Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three things babies have no use for whatsoever. Just bringing these gifts completely useless for a baby. Matthew 
somehow calls that worship. I think I've told you before that every year there is a national competition called the Next Generation Preacher Search. And it's for kids, boys and girls, 15 to 22, and they are looking for the next generation preacher, which is kind of like America's next top model for preachers. (laughs) And so for the last several years, uh, they have invited me to be a part of it. And what happens is that all of these kids have to film a five minute sermon, and then it gets sent to someone like me, and then I review their sermons. The kids who get the high scores move on. The other kids get a letter of apology or whatever. I don't know. But when you review these sermons, you have two forms. You have one form that the kids see, and you have another form for the organization to see, kind of forcing us to have to lie to these kids. And every year, I watch these five-minute sermons. Every year, the girls are way better than the boys. And every year, someone asks me, were any of them any good? And the answer is no. They're all terrible. And they should be. I mean, like, they're 15, 16, 17-year-old kids. Like, no one ever gets good at something, like, the first or second time that they do it. Like, they're all bad. But some of them... Some of the kids like have a little spark, charisma, ability, and you can kind of see something there. And every year when I get these, I think about all the stuff that these kids had to go through to get here. There's all the courage and vulnerability it takes to write a five-minute sermon and set up a video and preach to an empty room and send it off to some person that you don't know and you never will meet, and they're going to tell you whether or not all of your work was any good or not. And I know how they got there. Like, they got to delivering these really bad sermons because someone in their church encouraged them. Like they said something in a class or in a youth group or maybe in church with everybody and someone walked up to them and told them they did a good job and that they might have a future at this. And part of that is just older people being genuinely encouraging because everybody needs that because it's not about whether or not they're good. It's about whether or not they're good yet. And then there's another part of that where it's just older people, knowing these kids have tried their best, saying, that was cute. And here's why that's important to me. Because I have been phenomenally blessed to be with lots of different churches and conferences and conventions, corporations, and speak to those groups And I have done more than I ever thought I'd be able to do. And every time, every single time, when I'm done with whatever I was doing, I think that God in heaven looks at me and says, Sean, that was cute. (laughs) 
but it's what I got. It's gold and frankincense and myrrh. Jesus may have no use for that whatsoever, but it's what I got. It's the offering that I have to bring. And you, regardless of where you are in your life, whether it is in your finances or time, your vision, your gifts, you have something to bring and let Jesus figure out whether or not it's useful. That when you bring your gifts to Jesus, that Matthew somehow calls that worship. So the Apostle Paul later says is your spiritual act of worship to offer your life all of the gifts that you have been given. Because right now there are people in this room who think that you have no gift to give, nothing to offer. And so you restrict and constrict yourself and you hold back and figure someone else will take care of it. But this Advent season, when we welcome the Lord into the world again, our act of worship, what it means to worship fully is to bring your gifts to God and let God figure out whether or not it's useful. Your job is just to bring them. And that's worship. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecstasyahouston.org.